Welcome to The Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm your host, Meg Robinson. This is part two of a four-part series entitled Diary of an FBI Agent. In part one, we learned about Walter Lamar, FBI agent and Native American. As a child, Walter was told he would do something special in his life that he had unique gifts. We learn about his training at the FBI Academy, his crisis of confidence, and his ultimate success. He gets his badge and is sent to San Diego for his first job as an agent. And now part two, Hot Pursuit. So it was during the academy and, and that I learned how to tie a tie that, and I left there with one suit and I get to San Diego and I go to uh, a clothing store and it, it catered to sailors and I go in there and there was a very uh, attractive blonde who says, uh, well, let, let me help you pick out a suit. And she picks out a um, kind of a lavender colored suit with lapels all the way out to the shoulders, <laughs> bell-bottom pants. It doesn't sound like your typical FBI kind of, you know, garb. No, and it didn't. And then she says, you know, she said, I, I don't want to be overbearing. She said, but your butt looks really nice in these pants. <laughs> and I said, maybe I should get two of these suits. Yeah. The second one was a cream colored suit, lapels out to the, to the uh, shoulders, bell-bottoms. And then she taught me to get in some um, black and gray patent leather shoes. So, well, I thought, wow, I'm looking good. And when I went into sounds, the office. It sounds like, you know, pimp material to it, me. It, uh, in fact, one of the older agents, that's exactly what he said was, is, uh, <laughs> son, where did you come from? And what are you wearing? And, and he took me aside immediately. And he took me up to La Jolla. <laughs> to the Ascot shop mm -hmm. and he showed me, okay, this is a 100% pinpoint cotton shirt. This is uh, the kind of suit you want to get. This is the kind of cuffs you want to wear. This is, and he went through something that I had never really had before. So basically I was a country bumpkin now in the big city and carrying FBI credentials and a badge. <laughs> But I got there on a Friday, and I was, uh, and I'll never forget this, the, the uh, supervisor took me and my dad out in a car and drove us around town, and it was a really huge thing for my dad to get to do that, I, I, and, and, and I've never forgotten that, and that was the first part of, uh, basically that kind of laid the foundation for my FBI career because it was the FBI family, and they treated you like family. And so I go in on a Saturday, and um, since I'd been a clerk, I understood the workings of the FBI, I understood how things uh, worked administratively and so on. So over the intercom in the office, it says we have a 91 new, and that means it's a bank robbery. So they called me at my desk and said, I call it my desk it was gonna be my new desk as I'm putting things and pens and pencils and so on 
He said, we have a, uh, uh, a active bank robbery. Can you handle it? And I said, well, tell me where the, the keys are and, and where I can get a car and I can handle it. Okay, okay. I have to stop and ask you something. You've had four months of training at the FBI Academy. You arrive at your new job. The pencils aren't even in the drawer yet. And this doesn't seem to me like a lot of preparation to go out and start handling a bank robbery. The confidence that the FBI had in the agents that were leaving the academy was incredible. Because wow. when you left there you and you arrived in your first office, you were given tremendous responsibility. Um, and But you'd have a tra- you, there was a training agent who's you know going to show you around and do whatever. So I go out on a, on a Saturday, I go to a bank. And, and how were you were you afraid? No, I wasn't afraid at all. And and I but I did run down to to close files and I grabbed a bank robbery file and I looked through it real quickly so I would know what I had to do when I got there. And you mean it, is this like is this like a guideline for No, it's 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 actually um files of bank robberies. Okay. So I went down and I, I grabbed a, a file of a previous bank robbery and I looked through it and I see that you have to fill out this form for taking the film. You have to interview the victim teller. You need to interview other witnesses and you need to do a neighborhood. So I took off and I went out and I met up with the cops and it was really funny back in the days when you were brand new because your credentials were so new they would still kind of pop open by themselves and, yeah. and it was embarrassing because they looked brand new yeah. and they so were a little too shiny a little too shiny and a little too crisp and when when you arrive on scene and you're um, meeting up with uh, uh, a, a veteran uh, police detective I mean it doesn't take them a second to, you know to recognize that they got a greenhorn out there but I went through and I interviewed the victim teller. I interviewed witnesses. Uh, we actually developed a suspect that day working with the police. Mm-hmm. So when I went into work on Monday, I had all I had already dictated all of my reports. I had all the forms properly filled out, and I went into my supervisor and said, oh, "I handled a, a bank robbery over the weekend on Saturday, and here's all of the the paperwork, and here's my reports all dictated, and so on." And he looked at me um, with a little bit of disbelief that how this new guy, and after that, um, he counted on me for a lot of things. Sometimes believed that there probably would be some people that you might be able to, to find that would say that I might have been um, come across as being kind of arrogant maybe. Um, I Do never, you think that you were? I never thought that I was, uh, but I have been accused of that. Uh, people, because they mistake confidence and passion and sometimes people recognize that as arrogance and I was I was very confident and I was very passionate about what I was doing and one of the things I I believe too came from my background is I cared deeply for people so when you go out and you carry out a, a mission like the FBI has it's important that you really deeply care about people because that's what we were doing every day was serving people did intuition play a role in your being able to apprehend the the bank robbers? Well, I think, um, and 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 going out and and first it's is being able to relate to people, because when you can relate to the victim teller and you can relate to the other witnesses, 
and they recognize the sincerity, then it puts them a bit at ease. Mm-hmm. And it, as they're a little more relaxed, they're able to recall things more clearly. Mm-hmm. They're able to give you maybe a better description. So on the front end of that is having that sort of uh, rapport with, with people and that sincerity comes through. People can recognize that the you know an insincere person immediately, and and they close up. So that was part of it, and then came the instinct, and that instinct is being able to, um, as I mentioned earlier, being able to recognize and see things that maybe not everybody else saw because they weren't listening and observing, um, as I believed I was. So one example, and this was in San Diego. And one of the things the FBI always um, harped on and harped on was superiority of manpower. So when you went out on an arrest, they expect that you're going to have a superior force to arrest somebody. And then that way it protects the agents and it protects the, the, the people that are being arrested or the people that are around those being arrested. So is there a particular ratio, you mean, of, of people who... Go, you're not going out on your own, obviously. Uh, yeah, they, you, they absolutely, the FBI did not uh, appreciate that whatsoever, and they appreciated superiority of manpower so that you had more than enough people to handle it. Not uh, particularly just a ratio, but um, er, all kinds of things had to be taken into consideration. What was uh, the danger level of the person that you were going after? What kind of residence were they in? How many people might be there? Was there drugs involved, alcohol involved? So you look at all of those things, take them into consideration, and then then basically you build an arrest team on that. So a, a bank robbery happened in San Diego, and I responded. And the the first person, the first agent at the bank would typically be deemed the inside guy. So you're inside the bank, and you're directing everything that's going on inside the bank. And then you'll have somebody that is the outside and they're handling the neighborhood investigation and so on. So I got there, and I was the, the first agent there, and I started working with the police, and I'm interviewing the victim tellers and going through that whole uh, protocol of interviews and taking care of business inside the bank. Afterwards, um, I talked to the person who was doing the the neighborhood, and it was, it was just one of those things that, that instinct, that little voice saying, you know, maybe you should go and look around yourself. So I decided... Because you felt like maybe you, maybe there was something missing or... I, I felt like there was, I felt like there was something that, uh, that, that there was still something there. And we had uh, a witness on the outside who saw somebody running down an alley afterwards that matched the description of the bank robber. So I asked the police officer if he would um, hang with me because I wanted to go back out and, and go through the neighborhood. So we're going through the neighborhood, and I left my radio in the car, and it was the back in those days we had these big Motorola radios that were like a big monster brick to carry around. And I thought we were just, that I was just going to go take a look-see around and see what's up. So I'm down in this alley. And you have no way to communicate with anyone else not at with this the, point not without with, that radio. Right. Not not at the office, but I do have the officer with me, and he's got his radio, so I feel like I'm covered. So we're walking down the alley, and we end up seeing a person out in the yard. We talk to that person, 
And he says, you know, right about the time that that bank robbery would have maybe happened, I did see a guy who used to live in this neighborhood running down the alley. And he was wearing uh, a brown shirt and, and he had on jeans. He's about six foot three, slender. And he gave us his name. And he said, I saw him running down the alley. Mm-hmm. And so then now we have, and we call in that information that the police officer does. So we get a full description and then of, of who this person is. So we're going farther down and we find uh, an older lady. She's out in, in her yard working. And she says, about that time, I see this guy coming running down. And right over there in that trash can, he threw a shirt. He pulled his shirt off and then he had a blue shirt underneath it. And he threw the brown shirt into the trash can over there. So go over and, and see that it's there and gather it up as, as evidence. evidence. Mm-hmm. So now the, the, so we're still walking around and the police officer says, you know, I got to get going. I'm going to, I'm going to head on back. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm going to just wander around. I want to still look around here for a bit. And when the, we talked to the guy, at, on, on the front end who saw this guy and told said the name of the guy he said the guy liked to drink so i walk up to uh um, balboa boulevard in san diego and i'm just getting ready to turn around and i and i look and i see uh, a neon sign and it's it's like a martini glass uh, sign and and it's at a bowling alley so there was a little bar there at the bowling alley i thought you know what i'm gonna go over there and just take a look so I walk over there and I go in and I talk to the bartender. I said, hey, I'm looking for a guy that might have come in here. He's about this tall. He's got a blue shirt on. He's got, and he goes, oh, yeah. And then he says the guy's name. That it's the was same running name. Down. It's the same name. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the guy. And I said, well, where is he? He said he just went out the back door just a few moments ago. So I go out the front door and as I'm walking down the sidewalk, I see this guy peek around the corner. So it's just me and him. So I start trying to follow him, but I, but I don't have a radio now, so I'm not going to be able to call anybody. But I think maybe if a police car goes by, I'll wave him down or whatever, but I'm just going to follow this guy and see where he's going. Let me just ask you one question before you continue. You're not in a uniform. You just have like a suit. I'm wearing a suit. You're wearing a suit. You're alone. Okay. So um, I see him, and he's he's very wary. I mean, he's looking everywhere. Of course, he's uh, paranoid. Of, of, of course, he, uh, and, he, and he naturally he would be, just robbed a bank, then went and had a couple beers, and he starts walking down a sidewalk while I'm following. And after a bit, he looks back, and I'm there, and then he keeps walking, he goes around a corner, and he looks back, and I'm still there. So then he turned around, he said, why are you following me? I said, FBI, get your hands up, you're under arrest. And, and I drew my pistol, I'm pointing a gun at the guy. And he says, I'm not going with you. And it's just me and him. So at that point, now I know, and he's, a, he's, he's a six foot three, he's a big fella. So I know that we're going to have um, have a little time of this, and I holstered up, and because then I saw him walking from the back, and he had on a, a pullover shirt, so I I knew he didn't have a pistol 
in his waistband or anything. What do and, you mean holstered up? What does that mean? I put my pistol back in my holster okay. and said, hey, look, um, I don't want to fight you because I don't think that it's going to work out to my benefit. So um, I'm probably going to just have to walk away. And he started, you could tell he relaxed for a second. And as soon as he did, then I grabbed him, got hold of his hand, got a handcuff on him, got him down on the ground, and now I'm sitting on the guy. And he's handcuffed, and and it's it was it was almost kind of comical because he starts bucking like, and I'm like I'm riding him, and, right? And I see a guy standing there, and he's watching this whole thing. His eyes are uh, as big as saucers, and I said, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go to the payphone and call the police and tell them that an FBI agent has just arrested a bank robber, and I need some help out here. Uh, and he goes. You bet. And he takes off and he calls the cops and pretty soon I hear the siren coming. And that was a, that was a, a, that was a very welcome sound, trust me. Cop shows I can't up believe this story. And, and I show him my credentials and I said, FBI, um, this guy robbed the bank down the street. And the cop says, good work. Snatches a guy, puts him in the back seat of the car and it says, where do you want me to take him? I says, you know, I'm going to meet you down at, my, at our office. And then I get on a radio and tell, say, okay, you know, people looking, because we'd given them a couple addresses to go look for this guy. Uh, people looking for, uh, uh, can discontinue because he's a, he's been arrested. And went back to the office. The guy um, confessed to the robbery, told us where he'd hidden the, the money because mm-hmm. he'd hidden it in the alley. And, um, and at that whole situation was kind of indicative of when I talk about intuition and instinct, there were signals, there were things that obviously other people didn't see, something that I saw, something that I heard that made me believe that there was something afoot. And the original outside man who was supposed to be canvassing the neighborhood and looking for things what is it, and you may not know the answer to this, but what is it that made made you feel that there was more than what he was able to come up with? You know, in, in, the, in the FBI responding to, to uh, bank robberies, um, and, and there's actually quite a few bank robberies, and, and uh, particularly back then in California cities, because of the branch banking, there were banks everywhere. Mm-hmm. And because there were banks everywhere, there were more robberies. So, and I think sometimes people just got a little bit, um, I don't know, calloused or maybe even a little bit careless about going and doing the neighborhood because not very often did it really produce any real results. I mean, you know, you do that initial canvas and and uh, and if it didn't produce results right up, you know, quickly, people just moved on. And even this officer that I was with decided to quickly move on. And do you think the fact that you were new maybe helped because you were less, for lack of a better word, jaded, uh, that that played into it? You know, I don't think that uh, the fact that I was um, relatively new, whether that really played a factor or not, because, you know, I, I feel like I comported myself in, in, in similar a similar fashion throughout my career. I mean, they must have been slack-jawed when you came back and you had solved this case and you apprehended the guy and you were by yourself. To me, it's a pretty 
impressive story. Well, and I thought, this is a pretty impressive deal. Yeah. All right. I went out and I hustled up and, uh, and, and arrested a bank robber by myself. Well, in fact, um, I got, uh, I got uh, uh, a, a chewing out over the whole thing yeah. because you were alone. the boss said, you know, what in the world were you thinking that you went out looking for a bank robber by yourself and that you didn't have a radio and that you ended up arresting by yourself. So rather than getting any kind of the accolades I thought I might get as a result, I actually got chewed out. But at the end, but still yet, I mean, people recognize that, that you know, that uh, that, that was, um, I don't, I hate to say impressive, but they recognize that that was a little bit above and beyond that I went out and I found this person and tracked him down and arrested him. So that all happened within what time frame? I know you were called on day one to go solve the case, but how many days did that whole process take? Was it like the next day that oh, no, he was the, app- apprehended? No, I arrested him the, the, the same day as a bank robbery. So the bank, rob- the bank was robbed. I went out and, and handled interviews inside the bank and then went outside the bank and then Within an hour, I had the bank robber in custody. So we don't want to get uh, confused here. So there was the the bank robbery I went to on day first, one. Okay. And oh, then this is this a is, different this one. This is okay. like probably months down the road. The 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 first bank robber okay. that I went to where we developed a suspect. The suspect actually washed out in that one, but then we developed another suspect. Um, the squad did, uh, and okay. and the bank robber was arrested. Okay. How long were you there? How many years? I was in San Diego for two years. Okay, and that takes us up to what year? 1985. 1985, okay. And then what happened? So in San Diego, I worked um, fugitives and bank robberies. And when I went to San Francisco, I was, because I was um, pretty successful working bank robberies, that I was brought onto a bank robbery squad in San Francisco when I got there. And in San Francisco, there were, on some days, we had as many as four bank robberies in a day. Really? So, and and the, and San Francisco was one of the, um, probably generated more uh, numbers in terms of banks being robbed in the entire division than anywhere else in the country. And so it, is that just what you did? Were you just focused on bank robberies? Uh Working on the squad that I was working was, the focus was bank robberies, but we also worked um, kidnappings and extortions and, and other violent crimes that the FBI had jurisdiction. So when you think about San Francisco, from uh, you know, just from land base, San Francisco is not particularly huge, but during the day the population could swell to upwards of four million people in the city of San Francisco. So I got assigned a case, assigned a lead to look for a fugitive who was wanted out of Mississippi, and he had burglarized the house next or the school next to the sheriff's house. In Mississippi, that's not a good thing to do because then the sheriff was very upset and he pursued what's called an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant. And that's how the FBI gets involved in fugitive cases. The underlying crimes are state cases. Then the state says, we believe this person has fled the state to avoid prosecution 
and then we get a federal warrant. So now there's a federal warrant. As soon as we arrest them, that federal warrant is that federal warrant is dismissed, and they send them back to the jurisdiction. So I so a number of months before this fugitive had called and made a collect call from a payphone in San Francisco down uh, on on Mission, uh, which is a mm-hmm. as as you know in San Francisco is is a main street there, and it was down towards um, towards the Bayside. On, on mission and it was just months before a single phone call so i get a lead and i tell a couple guys on a squad hey you want to go out with me today and i'm going to go look for this guy and they're like well what's the lead i said well months ago he said how are you going to find this guy in san francisco based on that so anyway i, I end up talking to one of the, the the rookies and said hey you want to go with me today i'm going to go show this guy's picture around down in the tenderloin Tenderloins be where people would gravitate to, uh, and if you go show their f- photo around at convenience stores, possibly somebody seeing him might have some idea. We drove down from the office, only a few blocks, because the office was close to the Tenderloin. Go a few blocks, parked the car, got out, walked half a block, turned left, walked half a block, and a guy walked right by us. turned around and I said his name and he looked and I grabbed him by the arm and handcuffed him and I said you are the unluckiest person that I think I've ever met so how did that I mean was that a factor of your intuition do you think well I I find it I mean, I, I find that, it, I, I, and, and, and trust me, there are people, I think, that hear that story and say, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's got to be malarkey. Uh, in fact, uh, John Walsh of America's Most Wanted, in mm-hmm. one of his chapters, mm-hmm. he's, he, he wrote some, some about me. And, and it's kind of interesting, I, I look at it now, being Native American, he says that uh, he described me as a mixture of, of cowboy and scientist. Um, well, there may and, be some truth to that. Yeah, and, and... Um, and and a lot of folks um, would 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 chide me or tease me and say that I, I must have a carry around a golden horseshoe in my back pocket. But again, it's having the, you know that that some instinct. I mean, when you think about this, when there's a city of four million people, what are the odds of me walking right by that guy at a particular place that had nothing to do with where he made the phone call from? had nothing to do with anything about that lead but but me having an idea that he was in San Francisco and I went right to the place where he was so there has to be and I'm, and again I don't like to equate things to some supernatural some mystical thing I think there are there really are signals there's 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 something that's that 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 instinct that generates and and takes you to a place um, and it wasn't very long after that, I had another lead on a guy that had uh, was a murderer from Arkansas, mm-hmm. and he'd been arrested by the police in San Francisco uh, for vagrancy or some minor crime. But it took about six months for his fingerprints to finally cycle and say, hey, this guy was arrested in San Francisco. Well, that again, that had been maybe six months before. And I went out with a guy, and I walked down from the office by City Hall in San Francisco 
to the Civic Center and walking around the backside of there, just walking around looking for the guy. And we'd walk from the office down to the Civic Center. We're walking, and I see across the street and at a loading dock, there's four guys sitting there. And I told the, the, the agent I was with, I said, there he is. He's uh, on the left. You and recognized him. I, I mean, rec- Well, that's part of this whole thing. Yeah, is, well, as, how did as you being, know that was him? Is being able to recognize, and it's, uh, again, it's those, it's those certain signals. And, and when he had been uh, arrested by the police, he, um, there, there was a, uh, they described the hat that he had. And there was a guy wearing a hat like that. And so the, and part of the observation is when you talk about listening, paying attention to signals, the other part of that is the observation that I mentioned Mm -hmm. and be able to see things and recognize things and recognize faces, but you have to have that feel for it or you don't see it. And I, and I saw the guy and sure enough, it was him arrested him, walked him back to the office because we're only blocks from the office and the rest of this guy had been wanted for a number of years. So those kinds of things, I mean, that was that was not at all uncommon for me to be able to find fugitives like that or be able to find fugitives um, in in these these ways that just seem um, seem kind of crazy to to a lot of folks. But that was that was what I was good at. I was good at finding fugitives. I was good at working bank robberies. And so for lack of anything else, I say that it, that it was this gift that Winnie Big Road talked about years and years and years before saying that I had some kind of a special gift. And I always attributed it to that because this was finding one person like that could be an anomaly, finding a lot of people and fugitives as I did throughout my career, is more than an anomaly. So, and in my career there, I, um, and, and sitting here being interviewed and talking about these things, it, 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 it borders on bragging. So it's like you kind of have to, uh, or I feel like I kind of have to be careful about not taking this to a level of bragging, but, but I don't know if you remember all the way back to a TV show that Walter Brennan was on. It was called The Guns of Will Sonnet. Mm. And, oh. and one of his sayings was, uh, no brag, just fact. It was my, my, uh, my entire career, uh, there were so many things that happened. I mean, when, you know, we didn't even touch on some of the things in, in uh, San Diego that, that, that um, cases that I worked and, and experiences and, and, and things that I had opportunity to do. And probably one of the cases that kind of early on was um was emotional and was was uh a bit difficult was there was a a bank robbery in escondido california north of san diego and as it turns out there was it was a a van was used in the 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 bank robbery and there was the um and and in the back of the van was a uh an accomplice a female accomplice and um and she had a child in the back of the van and the, the bank robber, it turns out he robs a bank right next to the police station, and it's at shift change. And this thing turns into this ugly mess, and the, the police end up shooting his van all up. Thankfully, nobody gets hit. Um, but the guy gets out, and he goes, and he kidnaps a woman working in an office, and he has her at gunpoint. 
and makes her drive him through the police barricades. Police follow and they end up, the, the police killed both him and the hostage. So I end up rolling up on that scene, and that was a case that I had to investigate. And I had to go to the, the autopsy of this woman that had been um, killed during the course of this bank robbery. And evidence was everywhere because shots were fired in the bank, and, and the, this van was all shot up. And, and that was, at the end of that day, uh, it was one of those things where you sit down and you try to process everything that you saw that day, and it, and, and it was uh, difficult. And how do you process something like that? You know, and it was, it was interesting because it was years into my career, and it was probably in the, the um, 1990s that um, this organization came into the, uh, at, at the FBI in Oklahoma City where I was working, and um, this fellow goes through this explanation and he says, just like physics, for every action, there's opposite and equal reaction. Mm-hmm. He said, when you start out your day, and he, and he drew a straight line, and he says, here's where you are when you start your day. You're very calm. You wake up. You're not, there's very little stress. You're just preparing yourself for a day. And as you're preparing yourself for the day, there, your stress starts increasing a little bit, and, and you start on this um, Basically, this on a graph, it's taken, you're going up on the graph. And then depends on what happens during the day. Say you end up um, executing a search warrant. You have to kick down a door, and you don't really know who's behind that door and what's going to happen when you get into that that residence or place of business, whatever it might be. Then your stress level is, is starts climbing, 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 and is way up here. Well, then when you go home in the evening, that stress level starts going down, and then there's that opposite reaction, and then you go below that median line, and then you have to start working your way back to calmness. And, and what what is that point below the median line? Is it depression? Is it anxiety? I mean, what what does that feel like when you hit that low? So uh, the only thing I can I can't really uh, describe to you what that felt like other than say what the symptoms were. So when I'd go yeah. home, I would sit down on a couch and I had uh, two children and, and my wife is wanting to talk to me about what's going on during the day, the household things, things with the kids. And, and then I would just gradually start turning up the volume on the television set, mm-hmm. not even necessarily um, recognizing what it is that I'm watching. I'm just sitting there in front of the television set looking at it and trying to process whatever that day was. So I wouldn't say that it was depression, that it was uh, anxiety of any sort. It's just like you need to have that time to, to breathe and to be able to absorb and think about what that day was. And then you come back to a calm. And that makes it very difficult. And that's why law enforcement uh, officers, you know, there's a very high incidence of divorce. Yeah. And it's because day after day of that and, and, and your spouse, your loved ones are trying to talk to you and you're turning up the volume on a television set, it definitely has a detrimental effect. 
and does it get, are you able to cope with those sorts of days um, in an easier way over time, or is it the same process no matter how experienced you are? Well, it's like anything else. I mean, yeah, some days are, 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 are wilder than other days, and other days it's you're maybe just doing reports all day, and, and it's, you know, it's not the, uh, the, the kind of thing where you're um, slapping handcuffs on somebody or you're pointing guns at people and arresting them. Uh, that not that same kind of stress level, so it varied. So there were there were times that you know you'd you'd come home and you could kind of be, I guess, uh, a normal person and enjoy conversation with your spouse and and play with the kids and so on. But there were a lot of times it wasn't that way because it was a very stressful job. Right, and you couldn't really talk about what happened. Right. Uh, I'll, I'm sure there were instances in which a lot was going on or, you know, there was an investigation underway and you weren't free to share this with your wife, let's say. Well, it wasn't really that so much because it wasn't really, uh, nothing was really classified what I was, uh, what a lot of what I was doing, just simple bank robberies or fugitives and so on. So, I mean, without um, delving into details and talking about names and so on, I probably could have talked about circumstances but oddly enough and and this to this day I don't really understand is there really wasn't it uh, there was no interest to to want to hear it and so it wasn't like a, a a question where my wife would say oh can you tell me about how your day went today mm-hmm. uh, and then if you'd start saying and then it'd be like oh okay well listen here you know we've got uh, going to get new wallpaper installed or whatever I mean it was all it was things that were higher on on her list of importance and it didn't necessarily register on my list of importance and what I thought was important didn't register on her list of importance well I can imagine a situation where if my husband came home and he was describing something that put him in danger during that day I don't I'd be very curious and want to want to talk about it but there would be part of me that would want to avoid talking about it in order to uh, not be too fearful. So I'm sure they're sort of mixed emotions. And part of that, and that's a very interesting dynamic as you bring it up, because uh, it as you, the longer you're in law enforcement, the people you're most comfortable with are people that carry a badge. Yeah. The people that you can talk to, uh, they can relate and they understand what you're saying. So there was a, an occasion at one point where my wife said, "Oh, the, you know, I've I've met a friend and and uh, she's invited us over. We're going to go over to her house and have dinner." And her and her husband was uh, an accountant uh, for a large firm where we lived, and we go there and and I'm trying to engage in conversation, and I have had absolutely nothing to be able to talk to about with these folks because there's no way that they could understand what the kinds of things that I was doing every day. And I, sadly, because you start getting into this mindset and this perception, I didn't think that he would have anything that would interest me at all. Yeah, I understand that. Well, you're, you're going to tell me about balancing out a ledger after I kicked down a door today to arrest a bank robber. Where does that, where does that twain, no. that, that those twains just don't meet? No, 
No, they don't. And the and I think it has to do in part with the drama of what you do and what you were doing. The the life threatening, you know, incredible um drama and and decision making and everything that that most people just they don't have days like that and it and it is it is um life's dramas um played out over and over and and when you're working a bank robbery uh and a lot of times the bank robbers say well i didn't even have a gun i just had a note i didn't hurt anybody well when you interview a victim teller and they're crying they're upset they're afraid to walk to their car uh, afterwards. They're afraid to come to work the next day. They can't sleep for days and days. Uh, the fear that that uh, that the victim tellers experience during a bank robbery, uh, then you feel that, and that's that's a kind of drama that you carry around with you all day as well, because you see life drama playing out right before your very eyes. So. When, during the time when you were an FBI agent, you, I mean, what was your social life like? I mean, did you hang out probably a fair amount with other people in law enforcement? Did you, how did, how do people navigate that part? And naturally, everybody is different and situations are different because in the FBI, there are, as uh, uh, a whole broad spectrum of, of in investigative jurisdiction in the FBI, white collar crime, foreign counterintelligence, domestic intelligence. And so all of these different jobs held different levels of stress, had different levels of, of participation in, in those daily dramas. And so it was, it was typically the violent crime squads, the bank robbery squads and, and fugitive squads and those agents working those violent crimes and those fugitive kind of cases where you were exposed to a lot more, um, I guess you'd describe it more of, of police work because you're engaged with the public every day and you're out there every day um, on the streets. So I would say that, so from my perspective, the agents that I worked with is our social life ended up being with each other. So after work, let's go have a beer. So go have a beer at the at some some place close to the office, um, and then try to wind down from that day and then go home. Well, that too is difficult because you work long hours. So instead of going straight home after working long hours, you go and you have a beer with the guys, and that too creates issues. So. Yeah. Yeah. So law enforcement is it can be a very difficult occupation for for domestic life. Walter doesn't yet realize how much one particular historic event will ultimately take him away from home, testing his wits and fortitude in ways he would never have imagined. The historic standoff in Texas will engulf this agent in a drama which teaches him lessons about human nature under fire. Tune into the next chapter of Diary of an FBI Agent, Part 3, Inside the Tragedy at Waco.